today, Dr. Spanger, we're getting into the deep end. Oh, the boy, we're in the weeds now, brother. Yes. I mean, when, as soon as you mention the name Kant, uh, yeah, yeah, people's yeah. eyes roll. I actually heard a snore from this side of the microphone. Yeah. Somewhere out there, the minute we uttered it, yes. I heard someone's One of my nieces actually reading Kant for class. Oh, my Lord. She said to me, Uncle Mark, I can't handle Kant. I can't right? handle Kant. I can't handle Kant. And, <laughs> That's our tagline. And you know, it, it, what is interesting about what we're about to get into the next couple uh, sessions is that the to read Kant, uh, to read Herder, to read Hegel, uh, nobody wants to do it. Right. Right. <laughs> they, they all admit, they all, all the scholars will admit, this is hard reading, right? I, right? I've yet to meet a Hegelian or Kantian scholar <laughs> say, oh, you'll blow through this. The critique this, of like, pure reason was a joy. Oh, it's, yeah, it's like, like Hunger Games. You'll just blow right through it. No, they'll say it's hard reading. They're not good writers. Right. This, But what's interesting is, obviously, the average person was not reading this. That's right. Yet, right. yet, we're going to argue today that these philosophies have trickled down oh into the Vox Popula in many ways right. without most people actually reading right. any of yeah, this that's stuff right. and don't that's know right. where it comes from. That's right. Uh, and that's where our job is. And that's where a, to come from. Yeah, and that's a great... That's such an important point because because you can easily reduce this stuff out and go, well, come on, you know, what, there must be something else going on. But but the reality is, is that when these things... This is something you and I have been talking a lot about, I think we want our listeners to hear, is when you talk philosophy in something like Kant, even though there's a lot of technical things going on, underneath that there are some broad assumptions. Yes. The way you view the world is actually, and it's not the technical parts of Kant that are really quite interesting. Yeah. That's what he needs to make his argument, but it's down beneath it is these large assumptions. Because he's done that work, he can say actually reality is different. And that's where we want to spend our time, yep. is how is Kant, and I think you said this, how does Kant put us in a new universe? Because that's the compelling part of Kant. It's not the technical parts about the numeral and the phenomenal and the intuitions and all that. It comes, but underneath that, what is he saying then about yeah. the world we live in? Because that's where this really gets down to the to the. We can get say, a Francis Schaeffer quote in here. How shall we now live <laughs> right, in light exactly. of Kant? Right. Exactly. And, right. and so, what we want to do again, this is part of our idea of sort of genealogy, the DNA right, of right. critical theories. Yeah. And Kant's a big part of that. Huge part. Kant is a big part of that, and I think this is the why, critical part. One and I would say this is probably maybe why a lot of Orthodox Christians. Uh, have real issues with some of the aspects of critical theory because I think as we're going to see in this talk is Kant's going to move epistemology yeah. and 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 uh, ontology and anthropology and eschatology in a very different direction than the West mm. had been mm. prior to that. Right. Uh, even even Descartes and Locke didn't move in the directions that. Uh, Hume and Kant would. Right, 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 right. So it's a very different turn and it creates a very different setup. And in fact, I don't think you can understand the fundamentalist modernist debate oh, without Lord, understanding no. Oh, Kant. No, 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 no. Um, no, that's exactly, that's exactly correct. Um, but, but, you know, if you're not aware of how those, those, what's it, we say like geological shifts? Or yeah. Like yeah, you don't understand yeah. how the earth is shifting underneath it. Yeah. And you have a tough time grabbing a hold of those sorts of. Which shouldn't surprise us that here shifts. we are today. Right. And we're right. debating in our culture, critical race theory, critical theory, feminist critical theory. And if you look at it, probably most of our mainline churches, mainline yeah. Protestant churches, would be on the side of critical theory. And I'm, right. I'm painting with right. a broad brush. Right. And, and, mo and most of our more orthodox churches, um, evangelicalism, Greek Orthodox, mm -hmm. Catholicism, mm -hmm. 
they really have some tensions with yeah. critical theory and there's history there. Yeah, right? Right. But I think maybe one way to understand where's this tension coming from is mainline Christianity and, and, and the critical shift kind of went in the same direction together yeah. where I would say for the last uh, 300 years, Orthodox Christians have been wrestling with this Kantian mm-hmm. shift that's mm-hmm. taken place. Mm-hmm. And not sure how to negotiate that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. I think that's, that's no, I, that creates. A, right. There's epistemologically, they're coming from very right. different starting points. It's right. not just, well, you're small-minded and bigoted, or right. you're right. progressive and open-minded. Be, whether that's the case or not, but they are starting from very different epistemological yeah. spots. That's true. And you know, something else on this, Mark, and that's something you and I really wanted to make sure we're make clear in this conversation is that what critical what Kant hopes to address is in a lot of ways what many Christians hope to address, which was inequities, the, the abuses of, of authority. And you know, Kant, even in his own theorizing, actually makes statements like, we want to be in a place where we don't have to trust corrupt authorities to tell mm-hmm. us what's right or wrong, which I think Christianity has always been about. So it's, it's, it's shared problems, too, mm-hmm. that drive people to ask similar questions. And then the Kantians to go, and then many Christians who thought the post-Kantians were actually doing a better job. Their framework provided more opportunities to address real social ills of industrialization. Mm. And, and many Christians went, I think they're more honest about it. And the same thing's happening with critical theory now in that. And I think we've talked about this. Point. Yeah, many in the critical side are willing to look at social problems that some Christians are not willing to. And many, many Christians who don't understand maybe the theory or listening to both sides go, at least the CRT folk are willing to talk about this and you're not. So I think there's... That's a great point. Yeah, those are shared social problems that do create energy... Yeah. for people to start thinking in these ways. And I think, too, even with our work in our dissertations and, and our writings, we've looked at evangelical Christians trying to address modernity yeah. and the shifts. Yeah. And usually comes out of a post-millennial That's right. That's eschatology, right. That's right. Uh, which follows its way back to the Puritans and, and right. the Reformation, uh, with a very transcendent, right? It's That's extremely right. transcendent, right? Uh, but at the but same historic. time, at the same time, you have what we'll call the Kantian strand, and this follows through Herder and, and, and Hegel and Marx, and so, who are also trying to respond right. to modernity. Right. But the difference is they're really operating more of a closed system, right? So you right. have two, so it's fascinating, yeah, right? That they both concerned about some of the same yeah. things, yet they see very different answers to the problem. That's right. So and, let's and let's solutions. let's go where you just mentioned because I think you hit the nail on the head. That's important for our, you and I have talked a lot about this. We just presented papers down in um, a conference down in Texas on this topic. So you you just I think provided probably one of the most important basic frameworks that our listeners readers need to understand about this development is that if you go before we're going to draw a hard line. This is entirely unfair, and, and Mark, you and I would both agree this is entirely unfair to say everything changes at, at comp. That's not true. There's there's other thinkers before this, but. We're going to just, for the sake of clarity, we're going to draw a hard line at Kant. So all of you know online or listening who studied this know we're being unfair, for clarity's sake. Let's go just before Kant and imagine for a minute that there's this general perception of the world. You said closed and open, which is a really helpful way into that. Mm -hmm. That there's some, there's, it's not this bit, leave the philosophy alone for a second. There's some universe, some way of belonging to the world. There's some universe that people live in, in a certain way in the world, that Kant is going to encourage us to shift out of. Let's go back and talk about that just for a second. Um, and, and the word we're using here, maybe we just can touch on this word in its relationship to Charles Taylor, 
is cosmic imaginary. Mm. And, and there's two parts of this word, and then maybe we'll dig into it. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle one. I'm going to leave you to tackle the other. Okay. Cosmic. Let me start there. And then yeah. I'll, in the cosmic part, I think one of the things that we have to think, we have to understand when we know people and study them is that they, they actually see the world differently, and they actually live in the universe they see, mm-hmm. whether it's real or not. So one of the examples I like to bring up about this is why did people in the 14th century die of the Black Death? And the, the answer is they, they died of the Black Death because of spiritual powers that forced down on them yeah. diseases that killed them. Now, now, why would I say that? Because the person in the 14th century didn't know there was a such thing as bacteria and viruses. So they were living in a universe that worked wholly different than I live in. Yeah. I live in a universe where unseen things in physical area actually can kill when us. When a plague breaks out, we want to know who let the virus out. Right. Yeah, what right. from Wuhan did it yeah, come out yeah. of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. that's the question we're asking. We're, we're not, not asking, asking the question why God upset. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. exactly. So, so one of the things that's important as a framework, now, of course, there were bacteria and viruses. I'm not saying that. What we are saying is that people live in a time where the world works a certain way. Yeah. And the cosmos, since it functions that way, they then have to make decisions. You, it would be stupid to go back to the 14th century and say, why don't you guys practice better hygiene? Right. As if somehow that would lead to a solution here because that, they didn't live in a universe where that caused the problem. So what, what we want to say is that if we go back before Kant, there's a certain cosmos at work. Mm-hmm. And in order to understand what Kant is about to introduce is we have to see the shift from one universe and world that people lived in with certain terms into another one. And so we're going to use the word cosmic. But the other word we're going to use here is the word imaginary. Mm-hmm. Tell us why that's a helpful word to use. Yeah, here. and we're, we're, we're cherry-picking that from uh, philosopher Charles Taylor, who's written book, uh, uh, actually one of the best biographies on Kant. That's true. Or, I'm sorry, uh, Hegel. Hegel. Yeah. Uh, but wrote a book called uh, uh, Social Imaginaries in the Modern Age. Right. And, and he uses the term imaginary. Uh, sometimes to help people understand it, I might say, uh, social imagination, but mm. he's got a he's got a difference. He said that that humans operate with imaginaries, which and what imaginaries are is the way the world ought to be, the how the world works. But the difference, what he says is these are not necessarily fleshed out. These are not. They're sort mm. of like, well, this is how it works. This is how it. Here's the details. Here's the schematic. And, and, you know, it's not as if the the average person has worked out right. This, these are all the reasons for this. It just becomes accepted norms. Yeah. Um, and, and you can really see, I think, when you start, when we move into Hegel, you can see where Taylor's getting these ideas. Right. He's right. getting these directly from right. the phenomen- phenomenological mind. Right. Um, so this idea that there are social imaginaries, and we could say, you know, the paper I gave was talking about the social imaginaries in Annabelle America yeah. about race. Yeah. And it's so the paper, average northerner, working class person, they've never done hermeneutics on, the, on Genesis chapter right. 9, but they've heard a couple sermons that said that African Americans are descended from Ham and are cursed. <laughs> right, right, right. And, they, and they've gone and seen some, uh, some uh, minstrel shows, right. and they've seen the laws that have right. uh, segregated African Americans. So they just say, well, I guess... This is just the way it is, right? African Americans. Societies ought to be broken up by race. Yeah, that this is the way it is, and they haven't actually, and that's the imaginary part, right? right. And the social imaginary. Um, now your paper kind of took it to another, took it to the next height up, right? right. If we were going to yeah, do a Google right. Earth higher thing, altitude, right? right? I was sort of around twenty thousand feet, and you jumped up to a hundred thousand mm-hmm. feet um, with this idea of cosmic imaginaries, and I. I think the term we kind of say, these are sort of the intellectual furniture right. that's right. In, in a particular cosmos. Right. And right. again, I don't think, obviously, Kant and people like that 
they're not necessarily operating with imaginaries as much, right? Yeah. Because they're really trying they're to theorizing. Think yeah, they're theorizing. theorizing. Right. Um, but what they actually do, and I think this happens, is that oftentimes the elites, like Kant, like uh, like uh, Hegel, yeah, yeah, they create the cosmic imaginaries yeah, that right. sort of provide the parameters for the social imaginaries. Right. Yeah, and right. and then the, the, the masses kind of absorb the social and I know this sounds very Marxist and classist, <laughs> right? But it's 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 there is some value to this, right? Yeah. I think today, I think great example today, if you talk to an average Gen Z, uh, they would say to you, uh, Dr. Draper, Dr. Spanger, I think it's perfectly fine for uh, a man and a woman a man and a man to marry each other yeah. and adopt children. Yeah. Because in their social imaginary, that's been normalized, yeah. right? And they can't really give you details. Yeah, of, there's not an apologetic. No, word. no, but they they believe it. Where when we were in high school in the '90s, you, you wouldn't, wouldn't have met many yeah. people with that type of social imaginary, yeah, right. Yeah. right? So some the social imaginary has changed, yeah. and I think what we're trying to even get at is, since we were in high school, yeah. the cosmic imaginary has, has changed, changed. right. Yeah, we live right. in a different universe. We live in a different universe yeah. than when we were in high school. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, you know, we talk to our parents and it's like, you know, it's, it's a, it, I don't know how, how much more different yeah, it is, right? right? I mean, I, I often think if my grandparents were alive today or they came back today and most of they were all dead about 20 years ago, they'd be like, what happened? What you know, the, what's what, going what, on? What are we living yeah. in, right, right? Yeah, and I think um, uh, Carl Truman kind of yeah, tips yeah, that's that his intro, to yeah. his intro to his book on the modern right. self, right? right? A lot has changed. And I think the terms we're trying to say is, it's not just social imaginaries, it's cosmic imaginaries. Right. And unless you kind of rewind the tape That's right. and kind of go back to this Kantian revolution, That's right. That's right. I'm not sure we can make sense of it. I, I think you're exactly right. And that's where Kant really becomes so important is that, that the way the universe actually works shifted. And once and and, and, and I want I hope you all heard what Dr. Rip was saying in the social imaginary is that you you start with the ideal. And I think this is what why Charles Taylor to me is so impactful. Mm -hmm. Is because, you know, typically you think, well, when I start, I start accumulating facts and then finally I prove what's true and I say this is how we live. I think what Taylor is so insightful is exactly your point, is that you start with this broad view and you go, oh, that's the way thing in this massive view, that's how the whole thing works. And then it trickles down to, well, then how do I treat my neighbor? Well, then you, you start with the whole big picture first. And I think he's right. I think this is how people think. They don't actually prove what they think they start with the overall impression of everything yep. and that t informs how they deal with small decisions do yep. i vote this way do i act this way so in the cosmic imaginary yeah i think i think the way the universe works where it used to be this delicate balance of right and wrong is now this very progressive reality where whatever you do that leads us to more equality is going to make everything better no matter what happens yeah we weren't thinking that way in the cold war we were thinking like society is this delicate thing, and if we don't act right morally and we don't protect private property, this whole thing's going to collapse in a communist cloud. Yeah, yeah, that's not the way we think. That that universe is now not a delicate balance of right or wrong. It's now a progression from inequality to equality, and you've got to be on board with changing whatever you have to change to move life and society forward towards that. Yeah, that's a new social imaginary. In one sense, yeah. a new cosmic imaginary. And I think too. One of the things I, I think we should make clear, and I think um, Hegel does this, and I know Charles Taylor does this, is that sometimes cosmic imaginaries, and then in turn social imaginaries, are not necessarily thoughtfully constructed. Right. They That's evolve, exactly right. yeah. if I can use that word. And no, for instance, sure. when you move from an agrarian culture to an urbanized industrial culture, right. certain 
things have to happen. Yeah. And the world has to operate in certain ways yeah. for this to happen. Right. And what that does is it creates, it puts a premium on things like utilitarianism, yeah. uh, pragmatism, yeah. uh, capital, labor. Yeah. Like it, right. it changes things. Right. And all of a sudden that starts to change the social imaginary. Like, well, how do I fit into this? Right. Well, I'm the worker or right. I need capital or term, you know, ideas that. 300 years earlier sense. no yeah. no no i think of like you know the adams family trying to base currency on land <laughs> yeah, you know right. in, the, in the in the 18th century that just wouldn't have made any sense right. in this period so i so i think that's important that these cosmic imaginaries and social imaginaries are not always fully fleshed right. out and constructed right. and i think one of the things that philosophers try to do is they try to shape the cosmic imaginaries yeah. they were at least and I think this is the move for Kant, where Kant is so important, is he's really the first critical philosopher, yeah. right? Where he's criticizing, he's being critical of the status quo. The entire cosmic measure that came before. Exactly. To, yeah. and, and he's Cut also critical of the people attempting to use the Enlightenment, yeah. like Hume, to make sense of the cosmic measure. Yeah, he doesn't want to accept that. Yeah. Or the French. And so he's trying to, to, to do this. And, and explain yeah. how do we live. And the other piece is, too, I think even that idea of justice, equality, and those yeah. things, I think what, what, what the people we're going to talk about for the next couple uh, talks get is that there really is a disconnect, right? Because on the one hand, the Enlightenment is saying right. you're free, you're an individual, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. On the other hand, you're chained to the factory. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, which one is it? Right. Right. And I think right. that because while the Enlightenment created some sort of cosmic imaginary, the reality, reality. Right. of everyday living seemed to create right. a disconnect. And we'll get into this more because I don't want to give away too much now, but I think that's really going to come into this term of alienation yeah, that is going to be extremely important once we get past Kant. Right. No, that's, that's a great point. And I, I think we always have to keep... I think it's important you brought us back because we always have to keep this tension between the lived realities and then the way they're philosophized yes. about. And a lot when I when I teach students about intellectual history, usually what I say is the framework of the ideas is hovering there, right? And then all of a sudden, experience lines up with it, and some group of people go, "That explains my life. That's why." And I think the power of Marx, for example, was mm. him theorizing, and then eventually industrial labor going, "He's right." But it takes it takes that theorizer to actually get something in shape that when yep. the experience lines up makes sense, and we see that in critical theories as well. So let's go back to Kant, Doctor Spanger. Okay. Why is well, he let's so go back important. one step. You want to yeah, go back further? Than Kant. Well, just okay. one step to do this. All right. We said okay. cosmic. He needs a running start. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. We got to get the engine up in speed before you can fly. So we've got this cosmic imaginary concept in place. What is the cosmic imaginary? And again, falsely saying just before Kant, 1760, 1770. But let's just imagine for a minute that's a drawing a line. What would the cosmic imaginary be before Kant that allows us to see the break between what happens then and after Kant? Yeah, because Kant's not a deist. Right, he's not. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. So even Jefferson would have issue with Kant. Right, yeah, I think that's right. So, okay, so let's talk about what it would is. It is, so does seem to be more open, right? It's. Well, what do you mean by open? Go, you're go a open deist, person. you're at least saying, well, I know God, I, God exists, right. and I'm not going to argue that fact. Yeah. What I am going to argue is the God can't 
enter in. Or doesn't or doesn't, doesn't want enter to in, right. or in some cases just can't. Yeah, yeah. Because of that would throw the whole system off, yeah, especially yeah. if it's a, a watchmaker. Right, right, right. Um, and so there you have this sense, and even I think going back to Descartes and Locke, they weren't denying the existence right. of a transcendent reality. Right. right. Uh, and they weren't even denying so much that we could know it. Um, I mean, even Jefferson is saying, right. okay, in the statement, right? Yeah. It's yeah. God's in the Declaration well, of Independence. Yeah, the, yeah, the creator, creation, creator, creation yeah, of God. Yeah, I'm not That's sure crucial. Kant would have written that. No, yeah, he um, couldn't have. Exactly. And so, yeah. uh, or he could have said, you know, maybe the creator or maybe yeah, not the creator. Yeah, we don't know, yeah. But so I think you're right. I think it's, it's there's more openness to the transcendent um, from the elites, yeah. Even yeah. Yeah. on the ground, it's still completely transcendent yeah. for the most yeah. part. Right. right? There's still, you know, there are still people in the 18th century thinking the earthquake in Madrid was right. That was God's was doing. God's yeah. doing. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, this was not just tectonic plates. Right. 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 So I think that's a that's a piece. But as the as the enlightenment, I think, emerges and I think that the guy who really just gets them all crazy is Hume. Oh, my. Right. Because Hume is you can't know anything. Yeah. Right. You can't know anything. It's yeah, yeah. it's it's. In fact, I heard a, an interview, this is absolutely fascinating, uh, with a scholar talking about Hume, and Hume became depressed with his own theories. Uh, he, in fact, he had said, like, I would work on my philosophy, and the, the, the outcomes I was coming to actually made me depressed. So <laughs> Sound like Franklin. It's I would Franklin just go play backgammon to take my mind off of it, and then I'd come back and work on it for a while, right? yeah. which is fascinating, That's right? Awesome. Like that, that the very things you're discovering are actually giving you a sense right. of, disdain and depression and anxiety yeah uh but i think it gave a lot of people anxiety and i think where it really challenged people wasn't so much oh what did hume do to god what did hume do to science yeah yeah right because if that's not true because what's more enlightenment than right the sciences right? Right, right right and that's where i think kant comes in and is trying to make a space between the 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 empiricists, those who believe we know everything through our sense right. experience, and the rationalists like Locke and Leibniz who think we can know everything through reason. We yep. can kind of reason our way. Yep. We can just stay in our heads and figure it all out and work our way. Yeah. You know, and work our way even a priori. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and 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 where obviously Hume is saying no, 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 it doesn't work. Yeah. And this creates a sense of, in fact, Kant will actually say reading Hume. Is was really you know his come to skept, come to rationalism <laughs> moment, moment right? right? It, it, it did. Yeah. It really did. He said when I read that I was shaken by what this right. meant, right. and that was really what well, sent let, him let, to the let's test. Let's go to that just for a sec because maybe this will help clarify what and what what Dr. Draper's doing for, for those of you is he's weaving together all the various different elements of Enlightenment, Enlightenment skepticism, which brings us to Kant yeah. and. I think what what you could say about the about that framework that Hume is speaking into is that the, the and this may be lost on people who just don't have intellectual history background, is that what Dr. Draper is saying about God and the transcendent is that it's not just that he's there and you know whatever he exists, but that he is the only thing that informs our experiences. And I think to understand Kant, these terms are important. That for the pre-Kantian era, that the the meaning or if you want to know how to live right or you want to know what's meaningful. This experiential life that we have is only limited helpful. It's only limited in, in helpfulness, right? Because this world's a shadow. It's broken. It's not complete. So if you want to know what's right, this is what I think and this is what my culture thinks. But ultimately, it's got to come from God. It's got to come somewhere from the transcendent as a Greeks, Plato, the forms, whatever. It's got to come from somewhere up there in a place that doesn't change. Some absolute thing that can tell me no lying is wrong. Because mm -hmm. if I look at my experience, I, well, if I lie and I can get away with it, 
Your experience doesn't tell you that because experiences can lie. Yep. Your experiences are broken. Sometimes lying does work, but that's not because lying is okay. That's because experience is broken. Mm. And so we, we see this world of experience as what I would say derivative. It's, a, it's derived from something that is permanent, pure, and perfect up there. Mm -hmm. And I never treat it as final. I always treat it as something I've got to correct, right. I've got to shape, I've got to put back together. So that, that experiential realm and what, what happens, I think, in the Enlightenment, why Hume is so, so dangerous to many people, is that the Enlightenment didn't like that idea. And I think there's a problem that Kant is going to see too, that if the transcendent is the only realm in which we know there's truth and morality and all these sorts of things, who's the one that knows that? Yeah. The priesthood, the pope, the king, someone does. Yeah. And therefore, we're reliant as normal, you know, people, grubby people, yeah. the, the, the hoi polloi, on someone to tell us, but those people are corrupt too. Yeah. And what the Enlightenment does is try to, try to give us, and this is oversimplification, try to give us that absolute in a way that everyone can access. And I think at least in the, in the English Enlightenment, the natural law becomes that space. Yes. God yes. gave us a nature that's totally predictable. If you study it, you'll learn about God. Which is why Joseph Butler exactly, exactly. can use experience right. and natural law to work your way back to God. You can get to God. Natural get, theology. Yeah. yeah exactly yeah, right. Because yeah, God is the antithesis of Kant. Total antithesis. Yes. So the, so the English, and this is where Hume becomes dangerous, because Hume says, well, nature is not predictable. Well, now that's true. We can't get to the transcendent at all, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, and I think the other one, and we don't have to get into this, but I think on the French side, Rousseau and the idea of the general will is that it's, it's the will of the majority and whatever they need, ultimately, that will tell us what is absolutely true. And, okay. and so they can invent it or create it. The general will can invent whatever's right or wrong. These are the two ways that the French and English, and what Kant's coming along to say now is to challenge that entire cosmic imaginary. Yep. That the transcendent is the important thing and that experience is derivative and we either need a priesthood, a natural law, or a general will. Yeah. Way oversimplified, Dr. Yeah, 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 right, yeah. Right. yeah. So, so what is, if, that's, if that's the way the world is working and all the pieces you mentioned, what does Kant do to shake up that yeah. cosmic imaginary? And, and how is he shifting that in such dramatic ways? Yeah, and I think what Kant is doing is he is making experience mm. the only instrument mm. for knowledge. Right. Is, Tell is us that, why that changes yeah, reality. It changes reality in this regard where... Even, even go back to Jefferson. You know, we hold these truths mm -hmm. self-evident. Who, who's made this aware? It's the Creator. That's right. right? That's right. Um, what for Kant? Kant would say, well, to know what the Creator is up to is what he would call noumenal, right? That's the right. noumenal knowledge. And this is the stuff that might be real. It is real. I'm sure it is. We can't actually know it for sure. Can't prove it. We've never experienced it. Right. We can only know what we experience. That's right. Um, and therefore, and in fact, he is going to go so far as to say that. Even what we experience is shaped by us. Hmm. In other words, you know, you're taking in data. You're not just taking in data. You're actually categorizing it, shaping it, and putting it to the point where you and I would say, you know what, if I look at the world, it basically looks like cause and effect is a thing. Right. Kant would say, you only think that because that's how the mind, the human mind, has organized it. Right. That's it. That's the only reason. So we you can't prove that it's actually no. happening that way. And so what what I think Kant is so such a switch is that Kant empowers hmm. the idea hmm. of human autonomous reason. Yeah. And it's not just so much yeah. it's not yeah. even so much that the human is the is the arbiter of truth. The human actually creates knowledge. Hmm. Right? That this is all very plastic. Right. And and we create it. Therefore, 
look at look within yeah right yeah. you look within and that's how you sort of discover yeah. and what that is going to do and i don't want to give anything away i want to you know, i want <laughs> to tease it but i want to make people listen to the next <laughs> one uh but but what that is going to do that shift once you move away and say i can't know the transcendent i can't know the noumenal i know right. it might exist right i know it exists but i i can't know right. it right and there are certain times I may live as if it I know what it's yeah, doing. Right. But it's what I think the what did you call it? Relational truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? It's a functionality, it's a pragmatism. Right, right. But but when we when we get to this point where it's not so much where God is the arbiter of truth and we yeah. are trying to discover yeah. it, it is we actually create what we know. That's we right. create knowledge. Yeah. We we it is absolute humanly constructed. Right. And once you move there. I'll just tease this out. Now everything should be critically evaluated that's because right. to see whether it's there's not arbitrary no objective and, truth right, here. That's right. Yeah. Right. Like, well, maybe that's not the way to do it. Right. Maybe we've only been doing that because we've been shaping it that right. way. Right. right. Almost right. like we need new Jello molds. Right. Right. And maybe we just need to change our molds right. and reshape it. That's really going to create a very different piece. And I think the one of the things I think Kant does for the Christian is he's really the antithesis of Romans 1. Yeah. You know, Romans 1 is clearly getting at an idea of... God is known. God is known. There's no excuse. Right? right? Paul does not seem to have a problem with the (laughs) noumenal and the phenomenal. And so, but we're kind of saying, no, that's not true. Right. That can't be. We can only know our experience. Right. Right. Uh, And I think that is going to be very informative and set a trajectory that here we are in 2021 and we're still talking about this guy even though no one's read him right there's a handful of people that read but we live in the universe he built exactly yeah we live exactly yeah so this so maybe this is a helpful way to to maybe another because you got we need maybe multiple metaphors here because this is complicated Um, it's a complicated concept here might be another possibility way of getting at i think what what we're saying here dr draper and that is Right, you can't know. So, why, who cares that you can't know the numinal, whatever this is? Well, let, let's use an example, and let's use an example of, let's say, a white lie. So, what if I if I say, Mark, what, what's a lie? And you say, well, a lie is whenever you say something directly opposed to what's real. What if you don't say? What if my wife says, "Do I look beautiful today?" And I decide to walk in the bathroom and not answer the question. Mm-hmm. I say, well, that's not a lie. Well, now, okay, so now we got to decide which is a lie and what isn't. Who do we ask? And it used to be, and I think the, I think the real dream coming out of the Greeks up until this point in time has always been. Somewhere out there is the right answer to that question. Yeah. I, I don't know where it is, but it's out there. And I'll, I'll check with God. And when the scripture is unclear in the Hebrew, I'll go to, but I'll ask the Pope. Or my, somewhere there's a, an objective place looking down on this. And if I could see from that eyes, I'd go, ah, you're wrong. That is a lie. Mm-hmm. But, but what Kant is saying here is that, that that objective opinion is in fact there. Yep. God has a perspective and there is a way to decide it. But there's no way for us to know what he would think about it. Why? New Testament's written in Greek. It's Koine. The context is different. Mm. I live over here. I do, and Herder will do more with language and culture, so we'll, we'll get at how this, how this grows out of it. But the point is, what Kant took away from the Western mind was the one thing we'd all been desperate to find since Plato or since Socrates was, and since Moses, we know now there's an objective truth telling us this. We just got to figure it out. And what Kant has said, give up. No one knows. Yeah. No two theologians can agree. Yeah. We got, we've got we've got popes and priests, all the people that were supposed to know yeah. what that was, have all disagreed with one another. So now we come to this. What's the real truth about that lie? Mm. Well, did it hurt terror or not? 
Yeah. So we say, Dr. Ray was saying functional knowledge or functional truth. The value of that thing yeah. is determined, as you, and, I, and you made this, I think this is really important, that the value of that, whether it's meaningful or moral, is entirely determined by the experience I have with it. Yep. And so and I, I like this phrase you use, the only instrument of knowing anything is the experience that I have. So if you tell me, well, I thought this out in my mind somewhere and it appears to me probably that that is a white lie, I'd say foul. Right. Tell me the experience you've had that proved the point. Because yeah. if not, you're just giving me conjecture now. Now you're claiming the authority to know what God thinks and I got to invest you with papacy apparently yep. and simply just obey you. That Kant is saying, let's, that may be true, but get rid of it. Let's ask the functional. In my experience, have I found yep. that this actually hurts or doesn't hurt? And you see what's happened, folks, is truth has gone from something that's an objective absolute standard mm -hmm. down to something that's only determined in my experience of it. And I think when or, Dr. Draper yeah, says it's yeah. being created, yeah. when I experience it, I'm actually defining the term. Yes. I'm saying it isn't a lie, and therefore I'm making it not a lie. And, and, and the thing with Kant, you would think he would almost throw up his hands and say, well, we don't need ethics. We can't right. have ethics. Right? Oh, boy. But he, he does want do ethics. He's right. very ethical. So how does he get at it? And he gets at it in a very... I think you could say experiential way, right? Because what is he going to say? Like, he wants to flesh it out and say, well, would you want this done to you? Right. Right? So again, experience would you want to have this standard, experience? Right. And well, he feels he can find a universal here, right? Exactly. Something that's true everywhere. So in other words, you know, flip it. Was this a wrong thing to do to my wife? Well, maybe I'd appreciate if she did that to me because I haven't brushed my teeth in three weeks <laughs> and haven't combed my hair. Fence. Fence. Therefore, that's no, right. you know what? I'd appreciate her just not answering at right. all, right? right? And that, I think... And that he does, because he, again, this is the other, I think, part of the Enlightenment is, on one point, Khan is saying, well, there's a lot we don't know. Right. But I still want objective values. That's right. Because I That's don't exactly want right. to have to go, I don't want a referee to have to come in and make the call. That's right. right. And I don't want anarchy so that no call is made. Exactly. And I think the power of Khan, and we're going to talk That's about this later, point, right, because once we get to Herder up to Hegel, we've got to make sure this doesn't become anarchy and antinomianism to the point where... If there is no arbiter, well, then it could be anything you want. What yes. if I just invent blue unicorns? Well, the thing I think about Kant, and, and, and this is maybe a little more technical than we need to get to, but when he talks about the intuitions, and you said, you said you're right. I mean, humans actually make their experiences. Causality, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. along with time and space for him, are absolutely true, but cannot be proven in any way because you can't get, you can't get around them. It's like you can't take time yeah. and put it on a lab because you need time to get it to the lab. So... Mm -hmm. You can't get around time to see what it is. You're just in it. Yeah. That doesn't mean time isn't real. And some people misread Kant. They say, well, time is a category. If we weren't thinking, there would be no time. That, I think that's the wrong way to read Kant. For Kant, time is absolutely real. It's just I can't prove it. Yeah. And therefore, I will bump into it and I will have to use it. Mm. So the way he avoids, I think, nihilism or anarchism is to say, oh, no. When we've all decided and we've looked at it and said, I want to be, we're going to actually start to get something that probably is true. Yeah. He's not saying there isn't truth. Right. But your point is really, really important. And, and folks, this is, a, this is a gift to you to understand Kant. Experience is the only instrument by which I measure something's true. I'll give you an example of this, Dr. Draper. Yeah. We all do this because we have cars and vehicles. But as a pilot, I know this. I'm flying my airplane. And I am at 3,000 feet, right, over Lancaster flying my airplane north. That's, in one sense, a reality. If someone who was God could look down, he'd see an airplane, he'd put a tape measure out, and he'd go, yep, you're 3,000 feet up, and he'd go, compass, you're going north. Actually, I don't know any of that. I've got instruments on my plane that are reading air pressure that are just telling me there's a number 3,000, that a compass that spun and has landed on N. So those instruments, if I look at them, I actually claim that I'm... But 
But I'm depending on the instruments being accurate. Yeah. The air pressure being what I think it is. I had to set my altimeter properly before this. My compass has been adjusted properly. So when you use instrument, I think this is really helpful because it's not to say that I'm not. It could full well be that I'm at 3,000 feet going north. That could yep. actually be reality. I don't know. Yeah. Because I can't be in my plane looking at my instruments and be up above it going, hey, look at that. He's exactly right. Right. So the instruments are all I have is what Kant is saying. Yeah. And with that, we may be right. We just don't know. So reality yeah. is true. It's something is actually happening. We're going to take our best guess, but the only thing we have are relationships to use. I compare myself to you and other people. I can't yep. get the objective perspective. Yep. And this idea of instrument that I've got those telling me, and I'm going to, I'm, you know what? We may find our instruments are wrong later, so we'll, we'll recalibrate. But right now I'm going to say, I think I actually am at 3,000 feet going north. Right. And I think this, this also goes back to, let's fast forward this to now, and we're dealing with various issues and you have you really have two different people on two different uh, trails mm. and trajectories sort of yelling across the ravine mm. at each other yeah. because the one person is saying, well, you can't do that. That's not in the Bible. That's <laughs> that's objectively true, right? right. And you have someone say, well, my experience is this because exactly that's right. what I know. Exactly right. I know my experience. I don't know what you're talking about. You can't and, prove to me the Bible's true anyway. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, they'll say, well, you can't prove your experience is <laughs> true, right? And Kant would say, you're right. Uh, but what is interesting about Kant, though, I think, is Kant, because you're right, he's afraid of anarchy, he, he still says, well, but we should, we should still live, act as if right. there's a God. Right. Uh, which is interesting. And I can't take credit from this. I got this from John Frame. Uh, but he said, it's interesting that, he, that Kant thinks that acting is different than thinking. Mm. Mm. As if thinking is not an action. Mm. He said, so, and it makes a lot of sense. Like, well, Hume, if you think we should act as if there's a God, why shouldn't we also think, think. as if there's a God? And that's mm. a great point. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. You're, 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 again, this is the philosopher king, right? This right. is some sort of sacred space. I'm thinking. I'm right. <laughs> but I, I think that that's, that's, that's an important point that Kant wants morality he's not uh, exactly right. nihilist and he's not uh he's not trying to be immoral in right, that way he right. wants some sort of values but he wants them without a referee right, right you know can we come at these can we finally figure out a way uh to to do this and what i think what's interesting as a historian is you know he might have thought i got it yeah right and but then we follow the story on and there's plenty of people who say well i'm going to take this piece of con because i like that yeah, yeah i'm yeah. going to take this piece of herder i'm going to take this piece of hegel and voila there's a new system <laughs> right yeah. yeah yeah and and they still feel indebted to these people right. in some way right. but they they're also willing to critique them yeah uh, but i think i, I think let's let's talk this is a christian point of uh, perspective mm. sort of a biblical christian worldview why do you think con's so appealing yeah it's a good question and i think i think the reason that even sometimes I... Because it gives me a headache. I know. Well, it gives everyone a headache. But at some point, there's something appealing about this thing you call practical reason. And, and you know, Christians can do this. And I think this is an unfair accusation. But Christians can sometimes theologize a problem away without dealing with it. Yeah, right? Let's yeah. just... Uh, down You say, well, what's the problem with poverty? It's sin. Hmm. And that's true. That's true. That's true. Lack of obedience to Christ is the cause of every problem that humans have. But we could theologize it in a way that we're really trying to get God to answer it. In a the- well, if you had this fixed and that fixed, and I think of Dwight Moody with his own and what become Billy Graham's alternative to this is, if you really have a physical poverty problem, get Jesus. That, that's actually true. That's right, quite true. Right. But just because you get Jesus doesn't mean you solve poverty. Yeah. And I think what Kant gives so many Christian thinkers, why the social gospel kicks up in the end of mm. the century, and I think transcendentalists, by the way, you mentioned earlier, the same way on Absolutely. this, is once you think this way, 
then the true value is whether it actually works or not in the experience. And here's yeah. the corrective. If you've hyper-theologized these things, you're not actually willing to deal with it. Yeah. What if you reduced these sorts of things down to an actual problem that you could say, if it actually leads to an experiential improvement? Like, in other words, you could tell me I'm at 3,000 feet going north, but I actually have to get to the airport. Hmm. So that may be right, but I actually have to learn my instruments well enough to land somewhere. If I'm so busy trying to think out God is doing with me, I may never actually get where I'm going. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to trust my instruments long enough to know that I actually make a change in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think we're caught specifically in Germany, which they've dealt with, I think even the pre-Napoleonic era, they're dealing with feudalism there that we're yeah. unfamiliar with here. Yeah, yeah. That, that the high theology that's happened has not created the space to have practical conversations. Mm. Practical reason is secondary to... Transcend, transcendental sort of concepts about who is God and theologizing about it in that high sort of German way yeah. that practical reason gives and I think this is what's appealing to Christians is you, do you mean I can actually look at the experiential problem and try to solve it yeah you can but prior to this and I think even after it's for Christian to your point about the two avenues talking against each other it has to happen within the limitations of scripture mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm happy to have a, a, a practical solution but not if it's going to violate the law of God and that's a point where you have a social you know, a social um, gospel are going, well, then that part of law God we can ignore. So this, this maybe this is part of what we see uh, when we get into the late 19th century, early 20th century in American Christianity, Protestantism, the right. sort of modernist fundamentalist exactly debate. Exactly right. Where maybe what we're seeing is that the, the, the modernist move uh, tends to take a Kantian cosmic imaginary That's right. That's right. and likes... The fact that we can do something, but then still tries to kind of wrap in hmm. some Christian stuff, right. right? Right. That that type of thing. It's a very much a hybrid. It is a hybrid. It's a hybrid. That's exactly right. right. It, it really is a hybrid. Uh, and I would argue fundamentalism is a different type of hybrid. <laughs> right, right? Right. But but it, it's a hybrid in that way. In that it, it it's 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 it. So instead of playing with the cosmic imaginary of scripture. Or even the social imaginary of scripture, it's now using the cosmic imaginary and social imaginary that Kant and the That's people right. have created, right. while still trying to be Christian at the same well, time. Well, yeah, okay. So here's something you just said this, and now I'm 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 going to posit this, Doctor Draper. So mm -hmm. I'm just I'm saying this out loud for the first time. So okay. don't correct me if this is wrong. Well, I can delete it if we go delete <laughs> right. So if you if this next quote jumps directly, Doctor Draper, you know it was deleted. But what, is it possible to say that maybe what happens here is that the cosmic imaginaries do split, right? Because I think there's no way you can think in the traditional Christian Nicene way and yeah. hold constant. Because in Kant's cosmic world, the transcendent makes no communicable connection with us whatsoever. And I've never experienced a virgin birth. Right. So it can't, I just don't think I can say it's true. But what if, what if it, is it possible to think that because the cosmic imaginary Kant is still playing on Christian values, could it be possible that two cosmic imaginaries hold the same social imaginary. Because, because I wonder this, when you, when you think, and we've, we've always found looking for language for this, so this is what I'm teasing yeah, out, yeah, is yeah. we look for language for the fact that if you look at modern secularism, for example, the only reason they love human rights is because they were granted to that by Christian doctrine. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't get that from the Romans. They didn't get that from the Romans. You're yeah. not getting that from, the, you know, right. you're not getting right. that from uh, anywhere else but, but Christianity. So could it be that that the problem here really is you've got two cosmic imaginaries both angling towards the same social imaginary of health and justice and goodness for all, which is what Christ has been, we yeah, know he's going to sure. orchestrate. But on the one side, he has to orchestrate that divinely. Yep. The other one is orchestrated, has to be by humans historically. Now, and I'm, I'm asking this whether this works in your mind. Could it be that one of the reasons we have this really strange divide between fundamentalism and modernism in America 
is two similar social imaginaries yep. are now working out of two separate cosmic imaginaries. I think you can go, I agree with that. I mean, I think you can go back to the period that I study in antebellum America. Mm-hmm. Um, there is certainly evidence to prove that the transcendentalists in New England were influenced by Kant and Hegel and, and these thoughts. Yeah, uh, and they too were abolitionists and uh, temperance people and this type of thing. And then on the other side, you had revivalist evangelicals right. like Charles right. Finney, right, who agreed, right, right, and now they didn't like the way guys like Garrison talked, right, but they all agreed slavery is wrong, which. I mean, I don't want to go on a rabbit trail, but you could see where the Southerners would say, this is all bad. <laughs> right. right? Uh, cosmic imaginaries led to a bad social Yeah, imaginary. yeah. But no, I think you're right. I think that, uh, no, I think that cosmic imaginary is going to change when fundamentalists move into a dispensationalist biblical world, biblical hermeneutic yeah. and that type of thing. You can see a different social metric. You'll see a different yeah, social, yeah, yeah, yeah. and even a bit of a different cosmic oh, imaginary, yeah, I think that's right? True, because yeah. the eschatology is different, but... Yeah, I think you do see that. I think that even it's I, I, in 1848, there's the big revolutions in France. Yeah. And um, we have comments from Karl Marx on this, who really thinks, isn't this wonderful? Right. right? <laughs> because he has an made. eschatology, too, and right. thinks, you know, the workers are finally, you got it. And then you go across the pond and read Albert Barnes giving a sermon on the same exact events. And he's not saying boo about the workers, but he is excited that the kings are getting knocked off. (laughs) Because in his eschatology, the problem is democracy and freedom and liberation. Liberty, like American liberty. And, of course, he thinks the kings all work for the Antichrist, (laughs) then the pope. (laughs) And he just kind of sees this all working together. So in one hand... Both positive views, but very different cosmic imagination. Both are excited that the the proletariat... Yeah. And in some cases, even the bourgeois are standing up to the yeah. aristocrats and even the Catholic Church. Yeah. Yet they have very different interpretations of how that's going to play now, out. The cosmic imaginaries are totally different. Exactly. Right. One's right. run by right. God. One's run by. But they economic. both have a social imaginary that no, this stuff ain't right. So that's helpful. And, and and so just just again review in case these terms are new to you. What we're saying social imaginary is 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 the ideal society what it ought to be. Yeah. The cosmic imaginary is the mechanisms that the universe has to make that possible. Yeah, and the social imaginary is also just the, just the the way, the ideas that people are operating with. Yeah, right inside that ideal. Inside that. And they're, yeah. they're not. And sometimes they, they just think this is the way the world works. Yeah. This is yeah. the ideal. This is how it works. And, and usually it's the people who question the ideal who are the ones who will challenge the social imaginary. Yeah, yeah. So in the paper I gave, it's Frederick Douglass yeah, yeah. who's on the bad end of the stick right. of that social imaginary who's saying, this ain't right. Right, right, right. And right. we'll get into this. I mean, you could probably argue that what Douglass is feeling, what what Marx and uh, Hegel would say is he's feeling alienation right, right, right. from the system. And right. we'll get into that right. later. So where, where we've landed on this, and I think hopefully this is a helpful conversation, is just to show that in order to get to the to this critical moment, in order to get to the, where critical theories function, you actually have to get people into the universe that Kant has made. Yep. And Kant has built this universe where we call phenomenology and philosophy, yep. where all morals, and we're going to try to stick with these terms. There's a lot to be said. We're trying to simplify. Looking for morality and looking for meaning in life has to be found entirely in the relational space yep. where people in their experience interact with one another. And, and you've got to be able to draw out of that Without some reference to an objective party somewhere, what is moral, yep. how to live life, what's important. And you can see as we start to go forward what kind of mechanisms we're going to need. We're going to need consensus somewhere yep. because That's it can't right. be an individual. So we're going to look at what culture does this. That's, That's right. harder. 
this can't just be something that happens randomly. There's got to be a movement. So Hegel's going to give us progress and all yep. these sort of things. So when we come back next time, we're going to look at pick up Kant at the point where Herder goes this from individual experience into something we call culture. Yep which gives us a broader sense, which is going to set up Hegel and then Marx. And I think a lot of our listeners, um, not all, but a lot of them might be Christians. They've, they're operating from a Christian cosmic yeah, imaginary, right. social imaginary, at least a 21st century version. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, well you can't think like that yeah. and get into Kant's head. That's right. It's a completely different You've got plan. to get out of that It's a different place. It's the same way when we're teaching history. Right. And we take someone back to the, the 16th century. We're getting into a time machine and going yeah, to a completely different world. Might as well get in a spaceship. It's a different country, a different, different currency, different language, different right. customs. I think that's the way you have to think about as you walk through this journey with us, that in some of these spaces, right. they're, they're, they're still using some Christian capital that's right. because of Christendom in the, in the West. But they're really operating with very different uh, categories. That's right. And probably if you define Kantianism, it is kind of a religion because it's answering those questions exactly of right. why are we here, here? how do we get here, exactly where right. are we going? That's and exactly so therefore, right. it's a different religion than Christianity in yeah. that regard, if we use that definition. No, I, it's so important. And I think this is probably where we struggle. Christian, the, the, what I find frustrating about the discourse on critical theory right now is people are trying to have it at the level of like policy and at the level of you know this issue or that issue. You have to get under it to see the, you have to get into the universe that this is actually functioning out of. Yeah. And I think once you get in there, you find out that it's not as simple. There's actually real problems that are trying to address, but it's not at the policy level. It's down here at the, and, and, and also something you've made a big point about is that in order to talk about these things or agree with them, you're going to have to onboard something or the way we're talking now, you might have to enter an entirely different universe. Are you yeah. ready to do that? Because I think where we feel this sometimes is that what sometimes critical theory, not critical race theory, we'll get there later. What critical theory is trying to do is trying to force us into a universe I don't want to go into. Mm. And But if you're going to accept it, you can't accept it from the biblical worldview and simply just accept some of the pieces. Yep. It is a different universe. It's the universe Kant built. Yep. And you have to accept that. That's why we're spending time on this. And hopefully you'll see as we get into the next thinkers how this starts to materialize. A and it better. doesn't necessarily mean that someone on the, the, the Kant railroad system sure, and sure, on sure. the Christian railroad system, yeah, well as you laid it out, won't see some of the same problems. Exactly right. But they're going to have different religions to describe exactly it right. and describe well how said. we solve it and where we're heading well to. Said. And so they can say, I agree there's a problem, but I can't go with that solution with you. And that's, that's right. where I think sometimes the tensions are. Brilliant. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Sir. Thanks. Look forward to the next one.